You never told him? Never told him what was in the letter Dumbledore left for him? I was there. I saw Dumbledore leave it, Dursley. And you've kept it from him all these years? Kept what from me? Asked Harry eagerly. Stop! I forbid you! Yelled Uncle Vernon in panic. Aunt Petunia gave a gasp of horror. Ah, go boil your heads, both of you, said Hagrid. Harry, you're a wizard. There was only silence inside the hut. Only the sea and the whistling wind could be heard. What's up, potheads? Welcome to the Restricted section, in which a bunch of nerds with potty mouths reread the Harry Potter series for the umpteenth time and discuss how the story and its themes have stayed with a generation into adulthood. Thank you for listening. If you haven't done the reading, don't worry, we did it for you. Here's what we are talking about today. Chapter 4, The Keeper of the Keys. Do you want me to say synopsis? No. Okay. In this chapter, Harry finally learns the truth. He is not a freak. All these weird things that have happened in his life, from talking to snakes to leaping on top of buildings, were not, in fact, unexplainable. There is a world of magic parallel to the one he has lived in his whole life, and though he might not have ever known of it, everyone in it has known his name for a decade. Hagrid delivers Harry's acceptance letter, tells him he has been accepted at a school far away from the cruelty of the life he has lived so far, and even tells him the name of the man who killed his parents. But most importantly, Harry learns he is a wizard. <laughs> hey, what's up, everyone? Hey. Yo. What up? <clears throat> Welcome to my table. Thank you. Is your cube this what we're drinking today? Yeah, we're drinking Dark and Stormies. I thought it would be appropriate <laughs> considering the setting that everything is going down in. And we are drinking what kind of rum? Is it Gosling's? Yes. In um, Bacardi glasses, so we, we like all our rooms. Let's uh, start with a brief roll call. It's me, your host, Christina. It's me, not your host, Haley. I'm Andrew. I'm Mary Clay. And uh, I'm back from the dead, Mike. <laughs> I'm Brooke. Mary Peyton. Great job, everyone. And I'm your host, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> so today we read The Keeper of the Keys, which I can only hear that exact phrase in Hagrid's voice. Mm-hmm. Keeper of the Crazy Grounds at Hogwarts, yes. <laughs> so, does anyone have some initial thoughts about the last chapter ended on a cliffhanger? I uh, I actually forgot until I read them individually. I always, for some reason, thought that this chapter started with them leaving and heading on the whole trip. I forgot that it starts exactly at midnight with the pounding on the door. And I thought that was really cool when I went back to reread it. Uh, I really liked hearing that. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things about segmenting it out this way is you can you can really see where the cliffhangers are because if you're just reading right through this, it doesn't feel like much of a cliffhanger. Who has feelings about Hagrid? I love him so much. I I love that he's referenced as a giant so many times in this chapter when we know that he's a half giant, but I think it ends up being a nice perspective on a reread of like just how little Harry knows. Mm. Well, I think it one of the things that I kept thinking of while reading that he was a giant over and over again is the importance that this is a character who comes in, interrupts everything in their lives, who is finally big enough to stand up to Petunia and Vernon. Harry's had to take shit from them for his entire life, and then not only is he learning this amazing news that he's going to learn, but on top of it, this literal giant of a man shows up, and no matter how much he gets threatened, no matter how much people try and say, you know, stop him, he still is the one that saves Harry. Uh, J.K. Rowling loves a glittery eye. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. yes. glitter eyes and a lot of people glint eyes in uh, Hagrid. Although I do enjoy the fact that they are glinting like black beetles because mm. he uh, and they also use that he's got a long shaggy mane. Like he's immediately compared to animals, and I love that. I did also notice that he keeps an owl in his pocket. And I was wondering what PETA would have to say about that. (laughs) And or whatever magical version of PETA there is. I'm sure it exists. Uh, He keeps a fuck ton of stuff in his pocket. There's like, it's like Mary Poppins' purse in his coat. And I understand he's huge and his coat is huge and his pockets are huge. But it's to a point where I'm like, this does not make sense. Because he pulls out like 
a tea kettle, cups, a fire poker. He has sausages. He has a live owl in there. He brings out, he also has his umbrella and, uh, and some nice alcohols as well. It kind of reminds me of Samwise Gamgee for some reason and all his cast iron <laughs> pots. So Hagrid to me is generally one of the sweetest characters. He's just like, just good. Just all good to the point where he's ignorant about what he does that is bad. Which is when he's trying to take care of creatures, like an owl that's in his jacket. <laughs> Obviously, I'm assuming the owl did not have a great time, probably, in his coat. Probably got squashed a little bit, like the cake did. But these creatures that he loves and cares for so much, to the point of being sort of oblivious about possibly stifling them, literally. If there's a magical version of PETA, like, Rubius Hagrid is the founder and president. Let's be real. But he's also, like, and the Hermione. biggest offender. Yeah, no, there's a scandal, like, three years in. And Hermione. <laughs> Hermione mm. would be... Oh, yeah, she's the first member. Aww. She's their secretary. Uh, something I really, like, think about the beauty of this chapter is I think it really plays to uh, J.K. Rowling's writing style. Because she does such an amazing job, I think few authors do, where she takes description... And description becomes personality. And so before we're ever introduced to the character or really interacting or anything, we already are knowing this character and we already are falling in love with this character in a great kooky, cool way. I completely agree. One of the things that really struck me about this chapter is it's the first one that really sounded and read like a Harry Potter book. It, and I think that what really drove that was the amount of dialogue. There's a lot more dialogue throughout the rest of the series and every chapter, at least in my mind, a lot of the chapters are driven by dialogue. And so it's the first time we really see J.K. Rowling stretching those dialogue legs. And not just dialogue, but dialect. Uh, we get a dialect. And I wondered if anyone, because I have no memories of reading this initially, does anyone remember if they struggled to read the dialect the first time it was presented to them? Oh, yeah. For sure. This is an issue that we run into a lot at Brandy Lane because we are always trying to like give age ranges to our children's books. And it's hard because we obviously work in the book industry and we were all really advanced readers. So just, I guess that's a humble brag because, <laughs> because I, I never had any trouble understanding Hagrid. And I think that's part of what makes him really like a, like a safe, comfy character. Like, my mom was reading everything aloud to me, and she, like, had a voice for Hagrid, so I, I never had trouble, because I just always heard my mom's, like, version of Hag Hagrid's voice that kind of sounded like this, like. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I like him as an American, like, a really yeah. rustic American. Tying it into, like, my ongoing trend of uh, comparing it to 90s references, really, for me, going back to, like, memories of what it was like when I first read it, it's the red pill, blue pill from The Matrix. It's like you're in go and what you said, it, sh it opens it up to like, what is Harry Potter going forward? And prior to this, it doesn't feel like Harry Potter. And now the mystery is like, is revealed. And you're like, whoa. And the whole doorway opened up. And that's when I was like, whoa, this book's cool. I, I love how JK writes dialogue. My friend JK writes dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I remember, I remember, I think in high school, I was aiming to be a writer. I was all about English and, and writing stories. And I remember people sort of making fun of the way she wrote dialogue because she always or very uh, commonly writes just said this person or this person said. And in high school, when you're trying to do creative things, you're like, wow, that's super boring. Uh, that's not a great writer at all. But she she does a great job of thinking of what that character would actually say in that moment. So it's more about what they what they actually said. And she doesn't need these descriptors as much as other writers do, I think, because her dialogue is so good. See, like in uh, college level writing classes, it's kind of the opposite. Like if you're saying like mumbled, whispered, giggled, like that's something that your teacher's going to get on you about. And like part of it is just that like creative writing classes at the collegiate level are very like modernist. So they're like, if you're not writing like Hemingway, you're wrong. Um, but the said thing is kind of true. Like, if it's not necessary to use a different dialogue tag, you can just use said because, like, the reader's mind just kind of... Hello, Dante. The reader's mind just kind of scans past it and it, like, doesn't really matter. So it's better to have strong dialogue than it is to have strong dialogue tags. As an editor, it's kind of made me think about how... Um how much I tend to like enforce this kind of like super descriptive language in my authors. 
Um, I mean, some books really need that, but I've been, it's been really striking me all of these pages, you know, we're on chapter four, how simplistic this writing is. And if I were editing this, it wouldn't have been enough for me, but as an eight year old reader, it, it completely was enough for me. So definitely a lot to think about in terms of what kind of language she uses, because I think we all know that as the books go on, it gets much more complicated. Playing into that simplicity and yet simplicity within a heavy amount of description, I really enjoy the capitalization and italics that she chooses to use. She's very, very liberal with italics and capitalization to add emphasis on words, and she uses them differently to add different emphasis. And I really appreciate the way that she writes in that style because it comes across as being so natural and it comes across as being so inherently verbal. I want to bring up a specific line that Hagrid says. And to me, it stuck out because it's like a reverse of heritage. Oh, my God. I'm still traumatized. (laughs) How dare you? So that's a very famous like meme that we all love to make fun of that in the books. It says Dumbledore said calmly. And then in the movies, he's like, like abusing Harry and shoving him into a bookshelf and yelling at him. And here in the movie or in this line says, Never insults Albus Dumbledore in front of me. And it's in all caps. It says he thundered. So he's shouting. He's yelling a lot. I'm not the only one who hears that. No, he's right. What is that? That's definitely Sean's power tools. Okay. Oh, no, it's fine. I thought I was, well, I thought I was losing my mind. Hold on, hold on. Do you think it's picking up? I don't know. Do you want to? Okay. Shout. I'm just going to start the point over. Please do. Please do. So I just wanted to call out this one. I want to, I want to call out this one line that Hagrid says. And to me, it's like a reverse heritage. (laughs) We all know that meme. Still Dumbledore said calmly in the book. And then in the movie, he's like abusing Harry and throwing him across the room as he's yelling at him. And then here, the very, I, I would say it's a famous Hagrid line of never insult Albus Dumbledore in front of me. And that's very, in the movie, it's very, like, quietly threatening, but it's very, like, calmly angry. And then in here, in the book, it's all caps. It says he thundered. There are hyphens, or I guess those would be M dashes, in between each letter to emphasize that he's, like, really yelling each one. Also, I'm terrified looking at all the publishers at the table, waiting for them to be like, um, that's not really an M dash, that's an N dash. <laughs> it depends what version you're reading, because the Brit- my British version has N dashes, but I know the American version, per the Chicago Manual style, we love you, prescribes M dashes. I love as a tag that in the middle of uh, Vernon and Hagrid just shouting at each other, Harry gets the line, kept what from me, Harry said eagerly. And I'm just imagining sassy little pants Harry so freaking stoked to watch these grown-ups yell at each other about him getting to have something. I definitely think that the dialogue is really important in this whole scene. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. It, It is the first scene in which it's like incredibly crucial definitely the thundering imagery with the storm raging in the background it's an intense moment they don't want us to miss it the way that harry's delivering his lines in what i think we can all agree is like complete shock and disbelief right he's really delivering them in a way that is like so authentic just like kind of getting out what he can when he can it just it goes to show how dialogue and its labels can really convey a lot about a scene I think uh, one of the cool things that I remember, especially reading as a kid, and even now rereading it, like it feels like the the chapters come before it. You just feel like it just it feels so much longer. And you look at it, and it's only like you're only like in this book, it's like page fifty, page forty, but you feel like it's been forever. And then when Haggard shows up, it's this release, and it's kind of like when you're a kid, you always wish there was that adult who was in your corner who could finally say to the other adult, "Shove it." And now here's the embodiment of it. And even now I, I get, I get excited. I'm like, finally, like somebody is shoving it to these dudes and they're on Harry's side and Harry doesn't even know. He's just like, like what is going on? Yeah. Harry never asked for it, but he suddenly has 
finally someone who is taking his side and cares about him. And I, my favorite part of this chapter is how instantly they have this relationship. It's more, I feel like Hagrid for Harry because he knows his history and knew him as a baby. But I just, I just love that instant sort of paternal perspective that Hagrid has for Harry. And in the, I feel it very strongly in um, near the end of it when he says, Hagrid says, I never expected this. He said in a low worried voice, I had no idea what, when Dumbledore told me there might be trouble getting hold of you, how much you didn't know. And it's like, he's really feeling for Harry all of these years that Harry's had to live outside of his own world without knowing. And he's, he's really taking in how awful his life must've been over these last 10, 11 years. I think the line that kind of stands out for me from Hagrid in this chapter is like, he's not sure he's the one to tell Harry what happened to his parents. Cause like, he feels like that should be like a Dumbledore job or, you know, more ideally a Dursley job. Um, and like, he doesn't feel like he's like fit or worthy. And he's like, well, well fuck, someone's got to do it. So here we go. I guess I'm your dad now. Um, but like, <laughs> but I uh, kind of going off um, whatever Every single saying. male character. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but like Hagrid is, Hagrid is like that biker gang that like uh, protects uh, kids who've been like abused at um, court hearings. Guardian angels. Yeah. Those guys. Like he, he's like them. Like he's even got a motorbike. Mm. One of the big differences I had reading it, a few years later than I, the last time I read it is I'm hit with this dilemma where obviously I want Harry to escape the hell that he's in and to go to this magical world and have these crazy adventures and save the world. However, the Dursleys are his legal guardians as awful of guardians as they might be. And this giant man breaks into their cabin, stalks them, breaks into their cabin and then tells him this thing that upends his world. And then against their wishes, is taken away from the family to a school where he's taught this dangerous stuff that could potentially hurt them. I want Harry to go to Hogwarts, don't get me wrong. But it's kind of fucked up. But what is wizard law? Do we know that guardianship is a concept that exists? Um, I would like to hearken forward <laughs> to book six, chapter one, where the prime ministers know each other and they're like friends. Not friends, but like the one prime minister explains things to the other prime minister. And I think that this is a situation where Vernon Dursley would file like a fucking lost child. But like, would he? But if he did, like whatever he, he tried to pursue legally, the other prime minister right now, Cornelius Fudge, Fudge would just step in and be like, hey, we need that guy. You can't do this. And the prime minister would just be like, Vernon Dursley, go back to your stupid house. Like, this kid needs to learn magic. I did always kind of wonder about, like, what gave Dumbledore the legal right to take, like, to take Harry? Because, like, at that point, Harry's godfather was Sirius. Sirius was, like, in short order arrested, but, like, who who was next in line? Um, I will tell you how Dumbledore has that authority. <laughs> As per the letter, er, Order of Merlin, First Class, Grand Sorcerer, <laughs> Supreme Mugwump, International Confederate of Wizards. He's got a Daenerys Targaryen level <laughs> number of titles. I don't think anyone's taking him on. That's fair. So one of the things that rereading this I had to focus on, all of those titles are directly talked about throughout the rest of the books, except for the chief warlock, we go over Supreme Mugwump of the International Confederation of Wizards. We go over the Order of Merlin First Class, but Chief Merlock, Warlock, yes, <laughs> I think that is mentioned in Book Five um, when <laughs> Harry and Dumbledore are both being systematically discredited by uh, the Ministry of Magic and uh, the Daily Prophet, kind of working in Congress, because um, like he had been taken off of like a couple of councils and i think it was including like the chief mugwump thing which does that have an etymology or is that nonsense okay so, fact checker christina is googling the etymology of can we give credit right now to Haley for her obscure but encyclopedia I, knowledge because that was well, amazing yeah. <laughs> thank you shh, 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 shh. Oh my God. it's a north american word Oh, I'm cat. So, I'm so No, sorry. that's okay. No, the cat jumped in my lap. Are you allergic? Well, he's gone no, now. No, I forgot there was a cat in that. <laughs> There's two. There's two. There's two. two. So he even if you... absolute loving shit even, out of me. Even if you can see a cat, oh there God. might still be a cat. You, you and my dog have that in common. Okay. A mugwump. 
it says it's North American. That usually means it's Native American, but I don't know. A person who remains aloof or independent, especially from party politics. So that means, are they like the Green Party? uh, Oh, that makes total sense to me then, if that's Dumbledore, because... It really seems to me that Dumbledore would be, until they get into the, into like book five, six mess where Voldemort's back and stuff, but it really seems to me that Dumbledore would be like, I'm, I'm going to be an independent, I'm an independent, uh, I'm not voting for any of these (laughs) people, I'm voting third party. Um, I clicked on read more. And this is what I read. It's an Algonquian word. So I was right. It's Native American. And it means great chief. So this actually does make sense thinking about it, because if we order Merlin, that's just a merit award. That makes sense. If we assume that the chief warlock or grand sorcerer slash chief warlock are independent titles within the Ministry of Magic, then it would make sense because the Ministry of Magic is a parliamentary system. Almost every parliamentary system still has a president, but it's actually going to be more of a role where you're the head of state, not the head of the country. So you don't actually make the laws. You are simply kind of a figurehead, like a grandfather figure that people can go to. If you take then Supreme Mugwump, that would make sense because not only would he be the like ambassador of sorts, like the grand ambassador, but he would be a non-partied individual who would show up at the international level to represent great the great British uh, wizard. So that does actually all kind of make sense. I'm hmm. glad I asked. Because you're you did majored in poli- in um, political science in college, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm proud of you because in our trailer you were like, I work at a gym. I'll tell you how that relates to Harry Potter. And I majored in political science. I'll tell you how that relates to Harry Potter. And then by episode four, you've done it. Which so is why I have really to get proud that out so badly. <laughs> Um, all of that being said, all of these wonderful qualifications of what a great person Dumbledore is, here it is in this chapter where he didn't tell Hagrid fucking anything. He told, all he did was tell Hagrid, yeah, Harry needs his letters, so go take a letter to him. He didn't, I mean, it does beg the question though, did Dumbledore know that the Dursleys hadn't told him anything? I like to believe that yes, he knew all along and he just wasn't doing anything about it because a mother's love. But um, yeah, it's just like classic Dumbledore not giving all of the pertinent information. I think he would assume it, but not know it. So I think he's incredibly astute about stuff like that, but he wouldn't necessarily know. And so if he sends Hagrid, he's not going to tell him that he doesn't know anything. He also says, be grateful if be grateful if you didn't mention that to anyone at Hogwarts. I'm not supposed to do magic, strictly speaking. I was allowed to do a little bit to follow you and get your letters to you and stuff. So what that means is I can totally see a scenario in my head where Dumbledore goes, Oh, Hagrid, I need you to take these these here letters to Harry. And it's, it's really important he gets them. So maybe take your umbrella. Because I like see him totally being the type, if he didn't directly help Hagrid make his umbrella, to at least have like left helpful hints like, Oh! wouldn't you be able to put these pieces of wand inside an umbrella? Oh, couldn't you take it with you? And I doubt that he actually got clearance for this expelled person to use magic because the ministry would have just been like, send an order. Don't send the random keeper of keys. Right. So that solves, I think that solves what we were talking about in chapter three, which is who sent the letters in the first place. I really thought that it was something automatically sent sort of from Hogwarts. Um, Now it's clear that Hagrid sent them probably with um, from with advice from Dumbledore. Also, I think it's silly that we even think about whether Dumbledore has permission to do these things, like take Harry out of there, like whether it's legally okay. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and it, it never even comes up because the parents that, the parents, quote unquote, that are taking care of this child don't care either and they know the truth. So it's, it's really moot. So that, I'm glad you raised the point that we were discussing in the last episode about who the fuck sent these letters, because I, every single time I have ever read these books in my life before, I've been reading the Scholastic hardcover editions that I originally got when I was eight years old. And I think, um, I think that a lot of people are reading that version in the paperback, but right this time I'm reading the Bloomsbury illustrated edition and the fonts in this edition are not as discerning as the fonts in the Scholastic Edition. I was comparing it to my Scholastic Edition, and 
it is immediately apparent that the handwriting of the addresses on all the envelopes mm-hmm. that came to him are the exact same handwriting as Hagrid's letter to Dumbledore in this chapter about, like, I got Harry, we're going to go to fucking Diagon Alley. So I love these Bloomsbury editions, but they left me questioning something that is clearly proven in these other Scholastic editions. So one of the things I really uh, I really thought was really cool about um, this chapter is is that going back to, like, is Dumbledore intentionally left him with them? When you read this chapter, although my opinion changes constantly on it, I think he did because you see Harry being doubtful and modest, and it's something they brought up in the first chapter where they were like, if, you know, he might come an ego, this kid's going to be exposed, all these things, and here is Harry doubting it, being like, I'm not worthy if I'm such a great wizard. How was I stuffed under the stairs? And so I think it just goes to show that maybe Dumbledore did have a plan. Although, ask me next chapter and I'll probably change my opinion. Um, I think that like kind of an interesting offhand comment that pops up is uh, when Uncle Vernon is like, I don't know, he's talking about Harry and like the whole magic thing. And at one point he says like, I accept there's something strange about you. Probably nothing a good beating wouldn't have cured. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So that kind of implies that like the Dursleys weren't strictly speaking, physically abusive, at least not like in a systematic way. I'm sure they probably like did smacks upside the head. Don't we all do smacks upside I mean, the head? Yeah, we very much do. I, like, but, my, my dad smacked me in the face, yeah. but only when I was being a real bitch. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> this kind no. of... This, like, gave me, like... I don't know, just... Reading as an adult, I get so much more insight into, like, Vernon and Petunia's marriage, and it's fascinating to me. It's so fascinating, because, like, there's this give and take between them because like Petunia is so determined to be normal and like Vernon is, is her ticket to that. And like, she had to kind of allow certain things like, cause she's nicer to Harry when they're alone. Like we've established that, but I don't know, like their, their dynamic, like when it comes to Harry is just really politically fascinating. I love that because it's such an Edward Albee who's afraid of Virginia Woolf level of relationship where they are aggressively pretending for everyone around them that there's this dark secret that they're not talking about and it is what is at the core of their strength. One of the most amazing articles I've ever read argued that Who's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was actually a strong and cohesive marriage and I see the same elements in the Dursley's marriage. You are so wrong. <laughs> and yeah, that gets no explanation. <laughs> We're taking turns here. I don't think it's that fascinating, not to argue with you, but I think shitty people all the time find other shitty people to be friends with. And that's one of the things that makes me most angry about anyone who protects someone who is racist, sexist, just shitty in general, evil in general. They always have friends. That's a great They point. always have incredibly good friends that they're loyal to their whole lives and that they treat incredibly well. And so these people will defend them to the death. But you can be a super shitty person and still have a really good relationship. See, I fully, fully agree with you. But I find it interesting that, like, the dynamic of how shitty they are. Because, like, shitty people, I, I can't understand the psychology so, like, the little hints that you get, just the little tiny hints from Vernon and Petunia, and, like, the one line in this whole chapter that really sticks out to me is when Petunia speaks up, because she's been silent through this whole ordeal. She's been standing there watching Vernon, like, board up the door and board up the windows and just been like, I don't think that's going to work. But Vernon doesn't want to hear about the magic stuff. That's the price she pays for being married to him, is she doesn't talk about it ever, and, like, ramps up the hatred and the resentment that she already felt. But this whole thing where she, like, Harry whirls on them and he's like, you knew, you knew I'm a wizard. And she's like, knew? Of course we knew. How could you not be? And she, like, goes into this whole thing about Lily. And at one point, like, at the end, it's like, uh, she stopped and drew a deep breath and then went ranting on. It seemed she had been wanting to say all this for years. And, like, she clearly has. Like, she's had no outlet, not even Vernon. And I think she probably liked that. And I I love this part with Petunia because I feel for her strongly, probably in an unhealthy way, where I feel like I would absolutely be Petunia, which sounds terrible. But as a person who loves these, loves fantasy and loves stories and loves magic, if I were the one, if my sister were the one in the family to be gifted this magic 
and taken through this whole life where I, they get to live this thing and I, I didn't, I think I would go crazy and I would become awful and jealous and terrible. So I, I feel for her in a way that I wish I didn't, but I definitely do. It really struck me rereading it this time. At one point it says, Hagrid is talking to Harry and he says, never wondered how you got that mark on your forehead. That's no ordinary cut. That's what you get when a powerful evil curse touches you. And that part made sense. But then it says, took care of your mom and dad and your house even. And it almost sounds like it's the same curse. I almost get the impression that maybe at this point, J.K. Rowling hadn't really flushed out what the curse would be, first of all, what its effects would be. Because it almost reads, especially combined with the first part where the first chapter where it said the house was in shambles, like Voldemort didn't do the what we think of as the Avada Kedavra, where it's just green bolt of energy, body drops. It almost sounds like a giant fuck all explosion that just blew up everything around it. And little Harry is just left in his swaddling Jesus clothes floating as a baby. <laughs> it, it just really it, it hit me differently this time. I think he did use Avada Kedavra just like as a point and shoot for Lily and James. But I think the explosion happened because of the blowback from Harry and the, the spell repelling and everything. My question, though, then is Harry is still a human mortal child. He shouldn't have survived in a building that was like, well, get to should have fallen on <laughs> him. Because Bricks could have fallen on him. protecting As him. Well, get to that. In books six or seven. seven. As a deep nerd note in terms of word choice, it's an explosion, not an implosion. Therefore, signifying that everything would have been blown outwards from a centralized point, which was Harry, as opposed to collapsing inwards. It's very true. Is there any point, does anyone remember, where uh, a killing curse, like, misses and hits an inanimate object? Like, like Department of Mysteries or anything? There's two times that I can specifically think of, but unfortunately they're conf- actually three times, but they're all kind of conflicting. Both in the Department of Mysteries, while they're fighting in the secret room with the veil, it sounds like there's just blasts of energy. However, when Dumbledore then fights Voldemort, it clearly talks about, like, chunks being blown out of pavement and mm-hmm. stuff. But then again, at the Battle of Hogwarts, it doesn't ever say anything about the curse blowing away. It just says that they were bombarding the uh, castle itself, and that was causing it. So I think it's never super consistent, but I would have to err on the side that it only affects organic matter. Does anyone have an answer to Haley's question? Uh, yeah, man. Y'all are nerds. Uh, so <laughs> here's the deal. Like, you got to take back the thing that, one, we got to go back to the central thing that Harry is not a, a reliable narrator. And then, two, Hagrid wasn't there in the house. So Hagrid is just, like, and Hagrid has a habit of, like, not really being, like, on cue and knowing what's up totally. So I feel like when he's describing that scene and everything... He's not really describing from a scene of actual wizardry knowledge. He's just kind of like, yo, like, you got blown away, dude, but you live, bro. <laughs> what I was going to bring up and ask everyone is that Hagrid keeps mentioning that after he killed his parents, then he turned and tried to kill Harry. And while I do feel like that Hagrid can pop, perhaps exaggerate, I feel like that's the story that everyone sort of tells about this night that happens how the hell do we know that he even tried to kill Harry? I know that eventually we get to the point where the scar and it all makes sense and it backfired and all that stuff. But like, how would anyone at this point, other than Dumbledore, have an idea of the fact that he even tried in the first place to kill this random baby that couldn't have hurt him? It would have. It would almost have to be logic. And I'm assuming there's also some sort of DNA forensics. Both James and Lily are dead. And because of Godric's Hollow in the seventh book, we know for a fact that the house was destroyed because when they go back and visit it, it's a house in shambles. So there was some sort of explosion. There are two dead bodies. And I'm willing to guess that if you can do like a priori incantatum on a wand, you can probably do some version of that on any object, animate or inanimate to see what spells have been done on it prior. I would guess that speculation, but we know for a fact that the house was exploded somehow and there are two dead bodies and one alive person. Still feels like a stretch to me. Once again, y'all are nerds. Uh, (laughs) Harry is a badass. I'm stoked. The Dursleys suck. Um, Awesome. Something that struck me as I was reading it is how just comfy, cozy Hagrid really makes himself that bitch be 
grilling up sausages. He's like, the very first thing he says is like, I need some tea. It's fucking cold outside. And I just love how he just like settles in. The couch is buckling underneath him. And he just, he really just sets in. One of my favorite, it's a character note from the movie, but that I really like about Hagrid is after he knocks down the door, he goes, sorry about that and picks it up and puts it back. And I love that so much because it says so much about Hagrid that like, he's like, Oops, didn't mean to do that. Sorry, it probably gave you a fright, huh? That's a great point. I think that the movies, especially in moments like this, can really add a lot. And I was obviously thinking about Robbie Coltrane the whole time I was reading this chapter. And to be perfectly honest, if you read this chapter with no previous knowledge of any of Harry Potter at all, Hagrid's a little scary. He's yelling, he's screaming, he's trying to take you away. He comes during a thunderstorm. But Robbie Coltrane really makes him feel like (laughs) accessible. And it's little things like that. He Like this, this motherfucker in the book is just like rips off the door, shoves it back on. And it's like, that's terrifying. (laughs) And that's one of my favorite descriptions of Hagrid is how JK, she really puts a lot of her description power into eyes. As we talked about earlier, talked about how she talks about eyes sparkling um, a lot. I feel like she uses that because there are so many different types of characters and she wants people to be okay with different types of people slash different types of wizards. Um, and so their eyes having a kindness to them really makes a difference in who we trust as a character. I think... One of the things that J.K. Rowling did really well with the writing style in this is I noticed that when Hagrid gets mad and turns the umbrella on the on the Dursleys, specifically on Vernon, it says, in danger of being speared at the end of an umbrella. And what's really cool about that is at this point, to the narrator seemingly and to Harry, the idea of it ha- containing some sort of wand or magical element is completely lost. It's just what the Dursleys would experience, which is Uncle Vernon being afraid of being stabbed by an umbrella. Later on, it talks about it doing being the conduit for magic, but until that moment, it, everything is written as though it's just an umbrella. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, you gotta give her mad credit for her prose that she really does allow the reader to come along. The verbiage and everything progresses with you, and the narration and everything progresses with you, so you really gotta give J.K. a lot of, a lot of credit for that. Yeah, she really trusts her reader, which... As someone who writes, is hard for me to do. I'm always like, ah, oh, I gotta give them a little more. And she really trusts them with just describing the characters, letting them make their decisions. And generally, we get to the right place. Also, just speaking specifically about the umbrella, I don't think it's ever explicitly said like, oh, Hagrid hides the pieces of his wand, old wand in his umbrella. You piece that together very slowly. You have the first clue to that is in this chapter and then I think there's another hint when they go to Ollivander's and there's some note about like Hagrid's like, oh, yeah, I still have the pieces. And then he like pulls his umbrella closer. And then another mention at some point in um, Chamber of Secrets. And I just love that because there have been a lot of lifelong Harry Potter fans that I've you know talked to and they don't know or they didn't realize that the wand was in his umbrella. And so it is small details like that where uh, it's really nice that. JK. <laughs> so funny saying JK like she's our BFF. Um, I say it all the time. If, she, all the if that bitch was in this book club, she'd fit right in. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, I don't understand why it's such an outrage that a car crash could possibly kill Lily and James, aside from the fact that wizards don't hypothetically drive, except for very wealthy wizards, right? Do you have like kind of modded out cars? But it doesn't seem impossible that a sudden impact couldn't cause death for just anyone who is mortal. I don't think it's that, oh my gosh, they could never die from a car crash. I think it's that he's like, you had the audacity to tell him that such a perfectly muggle thing killed Lily and James when they died at the hands of the most evil Dark Lord ever. Like, how dare you? It'd be like... In our, like, day and age, it would kind of be the equivalent of saying that, like, someone who died at war died, you know, died in a car crash. It's kind of like hiding that they there was a very valiant, brave effort behind their death rather than just like, oh, they're just, like, driving, doing something normal. I think that's a great point. I think that's probably the real reason. But also, Hagrid is probably like, why the fuck would they be in a car? <laughs> yeah. No, I think there's something also taking the fact that, like, Hagrid, in a lot of ways, is somebody seeing their idol. 
And, you know, like, here is the savior of the wizarding world. And you're, you then see them in person and you're angry because you're like, why? Why are you not? Like, thing. And so I can, I can definitely feel, like, why he's thing. Because this hero, this idol, this, this child who is the savior is not the savior in this world. Not at all. I was kind of blown away this time rereading it because I think I'm giving it a much more critical eye than I have in a long time. And one of the things that struck me is we're only on chapter four and we're already hearing about the second of three unforgivable court uh, curses. Obviously, Avada Kedavra was mentioned not directly in the first chapter and later on in this one as well. We also get the line, some of them came out of kind of trances from Hagrid in regards to what happened after Voldemort fell and talking about people that were on his side. And I think it's really cool that we're already getting hints of the Imperius curse. Once again, whether or not J.K. Rowling had any idea that that was going to be a thing or how it would work or what it would be named, two out of the three curses have already been, the biggest, baddest curses have already been described in some sort of way and referenced in the first 60 pages. And I just thought that was really cool. Who's next? (laughs) Do we want to just take a break? Bathroom, drink, anyone? This is a podcast. (laughs) Guys, we're on a podcast. I love the comparison between uh, what Hagrid is both in personality and in appearance is the exact opposite of the Dursleys. So whereas they're very perfected and look perfectly trim and posh in everything social climber, but they act like complete assholes. And Hagrid looks like the craziest mountain-sized hillbilly you'll ever meet. And yet he is the sweetest, kindest, most amazing person probably in the entire series. And I love that he's the one who comes to get Harry, the complete opposite of the Dursleys. Um, I'm just going to maintain that Hagrid is probably not writing the letters. I would, I've would i seen Hagrid's handwriting. I I would not want him to be the one representing the school in writing. That's That's a McGonagall job. I would also like to say that my, you guys, obviously, everyone can believe whatever they want. What I like to believe is that Dumbledore was sending all of these ridiculous letters because like there are ones that end up in the eggs and that's to me that's very Dumbledore humor but I think this is the one that Hagrid that he finally was like okay here Hagrid uh, address it to Harry find him and deliver this letter I don't know about that just because you get one last classic Albus Dumbledore to me humor moment where the this letter is addressed to Mr. H. Potter, the floor, hot on the rock, the sea. True. That's true. And I just, in the illustrated edition that I am reading, the Bloomsbury illustrated edition, the handwritings are not discernible from one another. They're all in just italics. But in the scholastic edition that I grew up reading, Hagrid's handwriting is clearly the same handwriting as his addresses. He writes a note to Dumbledore that's like, blah, 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 Dumbledore, dear Dumbledore, I got Harry and we're, we're a go. Operation Harry Potter is a go. And he sends it into the distance and that's the same font as the previous letters. I really think that's a design oversight. I really just don't think he's addressing the letters. Like, I think they had like three or four fonts that they were using throughout the book and this was the one that they decided to use. I don't think Hagrid's addressing the letters. Also, technically, this is the American version. This is, like, a half a step removed from, like, the original, quote-unquote. Uh, are we not going to talk about the elephant in the room? Or should I say the pig in the room? I mean, somebody <laughs> turned into a pig. That was awesome. Well, no, well, even better, he didn't, he didn't turn into a pig. He just got a tail, which, by Hagrid's own admission, is because he was so pig-like to begin with. He only needed a little magic to finish him off. I understand that that's actually just him being shitty at magic, but it is also a fucking awesome joke. I actually hate that part because he, as far as Hagrid knows, if he doesn't know that the Dursleys haven't told anything, if he doesn't know that they haven't treated him super shitty his whole life, then he doesn't know that Dudley has treated him shitty. And he aims for the child, even though he, that child has literally said nothing. 
He called him fat from the beginning, and then he turned him to a pig. I hate that part about this book. I think they do a good job in the movie of justifying why that happens, because Hagrid in the movie is pointing his wand at Vernon, and then he sees Dudley eating Harry's cake, and that's why he shoots him with the pig. I mean, with the, with the, that's why he gives him the pigtail. But as a child, when I was watching that, it always, this scene always like, kind of scared me a bit because I 100% would have been Dudley and I would have been eating Harry's cake. And I was like, <laughs> Hagrid 100% would have given me a pigtail. But this isn't the movie. I know. That's why I said I think the movie doesn't. Yeah, matter. but this is the book. And all he says about, I thought maybe he missed hitting the Dursleys and accidentally hit Dudley. He doesn't. He said the only mistake he made was that he meant to turn him into a pig and that that's all that happened to him. Are we also not going to, like, address the fact that basically Hagrid is a shitty, like, uh, uh, hostage, uh, like, um, kidnapper? Like, he's holding his whole family hostage, and he doesn't even properly use magic. It's like if the burglar came in, and he was just like, I don't know how to use this gun in my hand. So I think, like, yeah, it's just one of those things where you're like, Hagrid is just misusing magic inappropriately, and no one's addressing that. Once again, Michael, you are proven correct that Dudley Dursley is in fact a product of his upbringing and is a sad little misled boy because he is com- he's completely innocent in this chapter. He doesn't do anything to antagonize. He doesn't actually steal the cake. He's just a poor boy that was raised the wrong way. And I think that the sooner that we recognize this and accept your theory, we're going to really move along with this podcast. I only agree with that in the very small window of this chapter. <laughs> But I will say that the comparison of him to comparison of Hagrid to someone breaking into the home and not knowing how to use a gun, the mistake, the only mistake you can make with a gun is aim, right? <laughs> Magic. Uh, you have never shot a gun. Okay. I, I mean, you can shoot case, it at the wrong right? time and you can shoot it at the wrong person. You can load the bullet incorrectly. Yeah. You can, I mean, there's One hesitation, too, if you're doing defense. I know. Well, I'm talking about when you hit one person versus the other. Mm. So... Yeah, it's a question Ricochet. of aim. So, like, magic, though. Ballistics, he's, physics. I mean. Do you see the war clouds behind his eyes? Or right, but there's, so much there's, war. There's, there's, not, there's not any mention of that. Hagrid apologizes for using magic incorrectly, and the only, he clarifies what he's apologizing for, which is that he did it, he did the wrong spell. He didn't hit the wrong person. So I just this is the one time I feel bad for. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna remind everyone of our discussions from uh, I believe it was chapter one. Microphone's gonna pick this up. Uh, just uh, for our viewers at home to know, uh, <laughs> Tina was in such agreement with me uh, <laughs> she that she spilt her wine. Yeah. <laughs> I am just going to point out uh, our discussion from the prologue. Uh, wizards don't give a fuck about child endangerment. Like it's it is evident throughout the entire series, and I think this is just no exception. Isn't this just further proof that the wizards are kind of stuck in like eighteen sixty ish? Because, first of all, a random guy shows up and just takes away the child. And no one really protests. They're just like, well, you're, yeah, you are stronger and bigger than me. You can take the child. So they take the child. And then it just everything about it just screams Victorian London. If honestly that's the way that we're going to handle this, where he just shows up and abducts a child, why the letters? (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. Once again, you guys, you guys aren't seeing it. News article reads: uh, crazy half breed giant uh, kidnaps Muggle family, steals child away to castle, uh, and was stalking and sending notes for over months. I mean, it, it writes itself. I, I, I just don't, I don't think that applies at all in this story because the the parents in question don't give a shit about him. Actually, they just give a shit about their reputation. So they don't want anyone to know that they're related to it. So if someone comes along and says all the things that they already know are true, he's not making up stuff that they don't know and takes them away. There's no question about it. And there's the parents in question again are abusive and treat him shitty. So it's, 
it's just a good situation to get him out. It's not a situation where, I don't know. I, I agree, but it still seems like it's a cult. Like, think of it as a cult instead of, a, <laughs> instead of magic. Like, mm-hmm. no, no, he's the leader of our cult. He is so important to our cult. We're going to take him. He's going to have a great life. He's going to learn lots about our secret stuff that we can't tell you. It's going to be great. So is the Dalai Lama. I disagree. I think that they give many aggressive liquidy shits about him because... Uncle Vernon literally, it literally says Uncle Vernon wasn't going to give in without a fight. He's aggressively arguing to keep him away from magic. And we had discussed that perhaps it is from a perception that magic is very dangerous and they thought that they could raise him normally and that he would not potentially be in the dangerous situation that they thought Lily was in. I do think that they care, not necessarily about him as a human, but they care that he does not learn magic. I don't think they care about him staying away from magic. They care about themselves staying away from magic. So when they talked about him as a baby growing up with his parents, they did not give a shit about any of them as long as they weren't connected to them. So now he is a, he has been uh, given to them as a responsibility. They do not want him to have anything to do with magic. I'd just like to point out that in the illustrated edition, uh, there's a troll doll on Hagrid's keyring. Also, I was examining these keys, and I think the one that has the wings is a little Easter egg foreshadowing Mm -hmm. to the key, the flying keys at the end of this book. Bringing us to the end of the chapter, I find that it's a very interesting um, kind of bookend that this chapter is, for all that it's charming, an aggressive exposition dump. And we're getting questions answered that we have not gotten answered the entire time. And we decide to end the chapter by completely avoiding Harry's first genuine line of questioning that he himself puts forward in this chapter about Hagrid's past. And that's the point where the questions have stopped. They're getting shut down and that's where we end. That's very depressing. I don't think it's depressing. I think it's just a thing. (laughs) I think it's funny that Hagrid has all this rage this whole chapter about the fact that Harry's questions haven't been answered. And then the second he starts asking him questions, he's like, shh. You said that this chapter is a huge exposition dump. I can speak words. To me, just from my perspective of I'm currently reading Lord of the Rings, to me, this is the, and I love my man Jert, but... This is a good way to do a quote-unquote exposition dump because she does it... She does it really well, well, where she mixes in a lot of, here's what's happened, here's some information about our world, not all of it, just here's what you need to know for right now. And then also does like a good mixture of bringing in the characters that are in the room, rather than like, Frodo and Gandalf sit by the fire and talk about a hundred years worth of history <laughs> over the course of 25 pages. <laughs> I almost feel like comparing this to Lord of the Rings is not fair because that book series has so much fucking exposition. Oh, so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just feel like the exposition in this chapter is handled very well in that it is delivered in a way that is like limited and like, forthcoming at the same time. Hagrid's like, I don't want to tell you this, but here I'll tell you this. Because Hagrid has no idea what he's gotten himself into. And I think that's a really interesting perspective in this chapter is that like, like none of us are ready for this. Harry's not ready for it. Hagrid's not ready for it. Everyone thinks that Harry has at least a working knowledge of the place he's come from. And the answer to that is no, he really doesn't. He has no idea. And Hagrid has to explain everything to him. I really think that Hagrid is like the perfect person to deliver this exposition too, because like he doesn't have all of the details one and two, like Hagrid like lives around kids like all of the time. And he knows how to not give them too much information. He's not always great about it. He's not always great about it when it comes to like dangerous shit, like animals, like absolutely (laughs) not. He's not the guy you need. By the way, there's a three headed dog in the, I should not have said that. But when That's it comes to thing. when it comes to like an, a, a child's emotional health, like Hagrid's your dude. Like he is not going to give Harry more than he can handle right now. He's like eleven years old. This is your developmental area. I got this. But like 
the fact that he's deliberately withholding some stuff that he like knows that Harry just has no context for and also doesn't know everything gives us like just enough to explain like what's happened up to this point, but also keeps us like wondering about the details because like it does raise all of these questions. So I, I think we, going back to what Mary Clay said, I don't think we should actually compare uh, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter because although they're both fantasy and we like look at it and we're like saying, they're so, so different. And I think in a lot of ways, there's a better companion piece to compare it to that I think really highlights and like grows it. And I really think that's Spice World. <laughs> Michael, you have been voted off the island. I bid adieu. Here's the We're thing. You, you're new to this. It's okay. You'll start to see it coming. You see how I started shaking my head about halfway through that? It's it's a pattern. You'll learn to identify oh, See, I thought Twilight was coming. I caught on around the same time that you did, but I thought it was Twilight that was going to come up. No, it was going to No, be more Twilight. I know I said it earlier in one of the earlier episodes that... It felt like we were on kind of a roller coaster going up the tracks and, you know, hearing the, that clinking noise as the roller coaster climbs up. And I feel like this chapter is kind of that crest. Mm-hmm. Like, it, in fact, it's the crest where you know that there's a point where the roller coaster is going to actually, like, go back up. Because right now you're seeing every – you're starting to see everything below you. You're seeing the magical world. He's a wizard. There's all this cool stuff where you're about to – you're about to like go deep dive into that where you go to Diagon Alley and then you go to Hogwarts and all this craziness happens. And I, I just, I kept feeling that anticipation building. And this is the first chapter that really sparked that in me. Uh, the first chapter was really exciting and I really loved it. It gave me goosebumps reading it again, but this is the chapter where it's like, Oh, here we go. Here we go. That to me feels like a great place to wrap this episode up. Maybe now's a great time to go around the circle and talk about what we have to plug. I got nothing this week, man. Haley, I swear to God. I don't. I haven't done anything new, man. You come to this next talking episode with something to plug. Oh, okay? there's too much Wait, stuff. Wait, Haley, plug the recipe for that dope-ass bread you made. It's uh, the Bibliosphere on Tumblr. She has a peasant bread recipe. It's very simple. It's literally three ingredients. So I, I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, say that I've started watching the show Lucifer for the first time. And it it's not that it's amazingly good. It's that it's amazingly average. It is the perfect thing to watch while like being on your phone in that way where I want to know what happens. I want to know the story, but I don't necessarily want to hear the entire episode. I don't know. I actually really enjoy it, even though it doesn't sound like it. But uh, yeah, so Lucifer. As always, you can listen to That's What I'm Talking About wherever you get your podcasts. This isn't a new recommendation, but it's just my recommendation. If you just got a Switch or you're wondering what game, Nintendo Switch, I should say, uh, what game should I get or something, the only game I believe that you need is Zelda, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. It's insanely enjoyable. I've been playing it for well over a year now, and I'm still finding wonderful things to do. And then today I just downloaded the extra downloadable content and i'm gonna be doing that for the next forever so it's just a very top-notch quality game uh a plug i like put in i uh, just i'm reading a book right now instruments of darkness uh by alfred price it's a really good book about just the history and use of uh, electronic warfare during world war ii and if you're a nerd like me and you uh nerd out on things like uh antenna theory and radio wave shit um it's pretty dope i strongly give it courage to read um, I'd really like to plug, I love Salman Rushdie. He's one of my favorite authors. He came out with a book called The Golden House. If you have odd misgivings about the current state of U.S. politics, um, he basically looks at uh, classism, culturalism, and compares it to um, the rise of Bombay immediately following the British departure. It is insanely good. His, uh, his insights are always particularly poignant, and it's a really good book reading it right now. So maybe that whole opinion will change, but uh, right now, <laughs> I do definitely plug it. So I finished the first two seasons of The Dairy Girls, which is phenomenal. It's a show, a comedy about girls, I think high school age, through Catholic school in Ireland in the 90s, which every part of that, I just feel so strongly... It's so good. The soundtrack is so good, and it's hilarious. I highly recommend it. This week, I'm going to plug Shadow of War. 
which is a sequel to the Lord of the Rings video game Shadows Shadow of Mordor. It's not plural. It's just one single Shadow of Mordor. And it's a great game if you fucking hate orcs and you want to ruin their lives. Hop on. And what's my catchphrase? And what's my catchphrase? Haley? 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 Get get the fuck out of my house. Can you please just keep that whole I'm section so in? Don't edit that out. Just, just, hey, shush. Guys, shh. Sh- get the fuck out of my house. That, that's what we can do. <laughs> Guys, this was a tough episode. <laughs> The Restricted Section was created and hosted by me, Christina Kahn, based on the book series by J.K. Rowling. All music by Ryan Kahn. Logo by Michael Hardison. Technical support from Sean Watson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at RestrictedSectionPod or shoot us an email at RestrictedSectionPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, feelings, complaints, conspiracy theories, or lavish praise. Can you title this podcast The Shit Show for this episode? <laughs> it's going to be titled 1.4. <laughs> the Keeper of Keys and Shit Shows at Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>